Hello, and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Magid Mandur. Magid is a political analyst who writes Open Democracies, Chronicles of the Arab Revolt column, covering the affairs of the Arab world with a special focus on social change in the post-Arab Spring Middle East. He is also a Sada writer for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a contributor to Middle East Eye, and a regular Arab Digest contributor. Our conversation today focuses on elite-led reform. Can it save Egypt from a looming economic disaster? Megid, great to have you back on the podcast. Thank you, Bill. Happy uh, to be here, as usual. Now, um, before we talk about elite-led reform, can you just remind our listeners of the current state of the Egyptian economy? So, the... Uh, economy is in deep uh, trouble. Um, so I think since March, the pound has lost about 45% uh, of its value, which is uh, a tremendous uh, drop. There is a deep uh, economic crisis that the regime seems to not have uh, a clear uh, answer to. They tried to uh, get a um, loan from the IMF, which they've uh, succeeded in. Uh, I think it was uh, concluded at the end of October, uh, the value is around $3 billion, but the total uh, financing package is around uh, $9 billion. Uh, this uh, now makes uh, Egypt uh, the second largest debtor from the IMF after um, Argentina. There is uh, an estimated financing gap for the next year of about $45 uh, billion which means that they still need to borrow a lot more. So in simpler uh, terms, uh, the regime's uh, economic philosophy is now uh, failing tremendously. Um, So it has now become clear that the policy of borrowing uh, a lot of money and then using it for those, let's say, um, mega uh, projects is not really working out. And the expectation is that uh, that the poverty rates will uh, will uh, increase. So basically, uh, when the pound also lost about half of its value in 2016, about 5 million people dropped below the poverty uh, uh, line. So the crisis now is much deeper uh, because it is much harder now to borrow. So the regime now seems to be uh, stuck in, uh, in a cycle of debt. And the most remarkable thing is that it seems that there is no desire or um, a political will to make the reforms required to start to get out of this cycle. Uh, so the situation is very bleak and it seems that there is no solution besides uh, the sale of public sector companies, uh, basically uh, mostly to, to uh, the Gulf. Uh, but there is no real structural reform happening uh, besides the uh, devaluation of the pound, which is a devaluation, but not a true, let's say, floating of uh, the pound. So probably the pound will lose more of its value, but just not in the near uh, future. You know, uh, Megid, one of the ways that you kind of want to get at how this is hitting people is to actually, you know, talk to the people who are most affected. As you said, the poverty increasing at a dramatic rate, uh, 
middle classes falling into poverty. You talk to people in Egypt, what are they telling you about the situation? So the situation is extremely uh, difficult, right? So just for the listeners, when the pound loses the value, this means that inflation increases rapidly. So this means that basically the income that you would used to have would get much lower uh, overnight because all of the basics are actually imported. So the uh, Egyptian economy is very uh, structurally weak. So we do uh, import a lot of the basic products that you would uh, require. So for example, Egypt is uh, the largest wheat uh, importer in the world. Um, so this means that if the, if the value of the pound drops, the price of food also uh, increases significantly. And that is mostly felt by the poor and, uh, and to uh, a lesser extent, the uh, middle classes. Do you think that people are, how are they responding? They're not middle class is not going to restaurants. Uh, I'm assuming the cost of other things are going up as well. Uh, energy costs, uh, you mentioned food costs. How, how are people coping with it? Well, I mean, I think it's very hard to tell, but in general, they don't have a choice but to try to get second jobs to reduce uh, consumption, uh, to uh, spend less, which also doesn't bode particularly well to the uh, Egyptian uh, private uh, sector, which is not very globally competitive. But this shrinkage in the market means that the private sector will suffer even more. And it is good to kind of remember that the private sector hasn't been performing particularly well for years. Uh, it has been shrinking significantly uh, since uh, CC took over. So this economic model as a comprehensive military-led uh, uh, model is basically proving catastrophic for the economy, for the private sector, and for, uh, let's say, the regular citizens. So the promises that he made of prosperity is just not going to happen. And for the next maybe two to three years, it's going to get much worse. The difficulty, as I said, is that it doesn't seem that there is a policy or a plan on how to change things. He seems to be actually doubling down on uh, the model uh, that he's been following, because uh, also a large part of it is, uh, is uh, political. So it would be, as, let's say, a severe blow to his legitimacy and base if he actually backtracks now. Uh, because this was a point of critique for many years, that all of those projects will not lead to anything, and in the end, it was right. Yeah, those projects, these, these mega projects he's engaged in, building palaces, uh, huge highways, this new city that he's created outside Cairo. And also, you know, again, if you can just remind our listeners about the, the tentacles of the military and how entrenched it is now, particularly under Sisi, in the economy of the country. So it is uh, deeply uh, entrenched. So the model is basically based on this uh, idea of a, a militarized form of uh, state uh, capitalism. 
all of those projects are either executed or managed by uh, the military. So the model is actually quite simple. The regime borrows a lot of money, has those uh, projects run by the military, which is actually not uh, paying any um, taxation and it is completely outside of civilian uh, oversight. Um, so this creates a bonanza of a graph, the corruption, where the military gets very rich, but at the same time, this is also combined with a, a regressive uh, taxation system. So this means that the poor and the middle class in the end pay for all of that. So it is a systematic transfer of wealth from the poor to uh, the military establishments and the connected uh, businessmen. So it's basically a model where everybody loses except for very few winners. And it is unfortunate to say that the international financial institutions have directly helped in this uh, model because the regime has borrowed so much from abroad. I think it's around a total of 120 billion uh, over the years. And based on the latest uh, estimations, they uh, spend about 400 billion in those projects. That is a massive amount to be uh, spent like that. And it's not really clear from where the money is, is, is uh, coming from and where the profits actually go. So it is a comprehensively closed system where the military just gains a lot of wealth at the expense of the populace. You know, Megan, I'm sitting in the IMF. I'm one of the, the senior economists there. I'm, I must know that this situation is completely flawed. And yet, what, the IMF is just keeps pouring the money in. How can this be? Uh, well, I think that's a question for the IMF, but I can guess. <laughs> So my guess is that there is a political consensus that Egypt shouldn't fail and the IMF's remedies have just, have just only made things worse. And the most interesting thing is that Egypt was again being praised for, uh, for its performance, I would say maybe two years ago uh, before uh, the crisis hit. So, in general, it seems to be a political rather than an economic or um, a financial decision. So, what is worth noting is that basically, uh, after the loan, it became clear that the regime could have received a larger loan package, but the conditions would have been more uh, stringent and would have required the liquidation of uh, the military's uh, involvement in the uh, economy or let's say uh, at least reining it in and the regime decided to go for the smaller uh, package just to uh, avoid that which is basically showing how critical this model is for the regime's uh, survival and that is also bringing up the point of can the regime reform itself and it seems, at the moment at least, that this is a very far away possibility, which is actually quite horrifying, uh, because this means that there is no solution in their toolkit except just repression, repression, repression. Mm. 
And in a sense, Sisi himself has built a trap because presumably if he tried to do what the IMF said, okay, if you want more money, you've got to rein in the generals, the generals would, uh, what, replace him? I wouldn't say that that would be an immediate reaction, but he definitely cannot cross the generals or the uh, security uh, services at large. So Sisi is actually quite unique in uh, the military uh, regimes that have ruled the country since uh, 1952. And the uniqueness comes from the fact that he does not have a civilian ruling party, nor does he seem interested in actually building one, which is the first time that I'm aware of that this has happened since 1952. So his entire power base is centered, revolving around the military and the uh, security um, uh, services. That's why even when it makes sense for him to reform something, he can't. It doesn't mean that he's that he uh, is uh, powerless, but it means that the military is really the power behind uh, the throne. So if he does that, he will suffer consequences that he can't really balance. So he doesn't have a civilian mass party that he can use to uh, to. For example, uh, populate uh, the state uh, apparatus. He can't really do that. So the situation is actually very uh, difficult for him in a way that is not entirely unexpected. But I think if you like in the popular mind, he is the most powerful man and he rules alone. I don't think that that's the case. I think it is clear military rule. And he is the head of that rule, but he cannot go against uh, the military's interests. You know, it's interesting, too, uh, that, that, as you said, quite rightly, that since 1952, the generals have effectively been running Egypt. And, of course, Mubarak had his own civilian political party, didn't he, which, which allowed him the comfort, I suppose, of ruling as a dictator without appearing to the West, at least, to be a dictator. Absolutely. And to assert, I mean, to be clear, the generals always played a role, but their power base was never as strong as now. So uh, under uh, Mubarak, they were the core, but they were not the only game in town. So there was a mass civilian ruling uh, party that uh, Mubarak could actually use to balance out the military. And there was the police, which I think was three times the size of the military, and they were also not really uh, getting along. <laughs> so it was clear that there was fragmentation and there was uh, tension, but Mubarak could use it somehow to balance them out and to make sure that the military's influence does not exceed a certain uh, threshold. It doesn't mean that they were weak. No, 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 uh, not at all. But they were not running the show in the sense of the day-to-day -day running of the show. Now the situation is very different. Now there is no civilian ruling party, the police and the, uh, and the uh, security services seems to be completely subdued and uh, under uh, the control of the military which means that there is no way to balance them out. So, in a way, Sisi is weaker than uh, Mubarak. 
in a way that might be surprising to many. Of course, the thing that is very worrying is that in this fragmentation allowed the 2011 protest to actually work because the military wasn't happy uh, with the um, succession of uh, uh, Gamal. So it was a good chance for them to actually get rid of their uh, uh, rivals. Now the situation is very different. So even if there is uh, an eruption there, we don't know how the military will actually um, react. That is a very important factor also uh, to think about. So yeah, it's, 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 it's very hard to think how things uh, will uh, actually go. Gamal being, of course, the son of, of Mubarak. You know, when we were talking about uh, what we talk about on this week's podcast, you, you said you want to talk about elite-led reform. So, first of all, what is it and, and what sort of impact can it have on an economy which, as you've already described, is in such deep trouble? So, this for me means the changes without mass popular participation. So, you wouldn't even have to change the political system much. There might be a minor uh, opening, but the military would remain in a, a dominant position. But after the collapse of the uh, economic system, it would become clear that that this hyper-centralization doesn't work anymore. And there has to be a way to get away from that. So what would be clear, for example, is the need to, for the military to step back uh, to privatize their uh, economic enterprises, at least the ones where it's clear that they shouldn't be in, like, uh, um, for example, uh, spaghettis or bottled water, all of that. They're, they have no business being there. So a bit of a shift in the economic, let's say, um, philosophy and move away from those big uh, infrastructure projects and basically allowing the private sector to come in, to grow, to develop a little bit better. Uh, so that's what I mean. But it seems that there is significant resistance to any form of uh, reform. This really doesn't seem to be on the table at all. There is refusal to do so, which is also opening up kind of an, 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 an interesting dynamic, which is what would happen now when the Gulfies want to invest more in the country while the military is resisting that. Uh, and there are some uh, indicators of uh, this happening. So will we have a situation where the Gulfies are going to pull back their money because the military is not willing to have them there? Because the model of aid just like this is over. The Gulfies will just not invest money like this anymore, they will actually buy into um, the market. So the question now is, the dynamic is, uh, will there will be a, a competition between the Gulfies and uh, the military with the military resisting investments in that form? Mm, that's a very interesting thought. I'll take two things from your answer. One is that in order for elite reform to uh, to occur, there would have to be a complete crash of the economy, which is which is terrible to contemplate from the point of view of of the Egyptian people. And the second, as you quite rightly say, the the role of the Gulf, which is 
you know, pumped billions into into CC, uh, certainly during the, the coup and immediately after the coup. But I want to ask you this, Magad, because we, we saw the uh, the picture of uh, of CC and Emir Tamim, the the uh, Qatari leader, shaking hands at the World Cup, and and of course Egypt was part of that uh, quartet that uh, uh, consisting of the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Bahrain was in there as well, that blockaded Qatar from 2017 until, uh, what, 2021, January 2021. And there they are, shaking hands. I know that uh, they've met before, now in the, in, in, in the summer they met. But how important is Qatar to Egypt? And I ask that because, you know, there are still these tensions between yep. certainly the UAE and the Qatar. And, and, and is Qatar seeing an opportunity that they could jump in and... and and perhaps gain gain a, an advantage on particularly the Emiratis? Well, I don't suspect that that will happen in the sense that the uh, alliance with Egypt is actually much deeper with the uh, Emiratis, even though there are tensions, but it remains much closer than with the Qataris. So the Qataris are now starting to also uh, invest so I think they've pledged about $5 billion worth of, of uh, investments. So I think now the name of the game is pragmatism. Uh, CC needs all of the funds that he can receive. And if the Qataris are willing to do that, then I don't think that he's going to say no to them. Yeah, so I guess we'll have to just um, watch and see how that plays out. Uh, and now, finally, Megan, I want to get your thoughts on COP27, which is concluded. You know, CC with his emphasis on the mega projects is causing huge environmental damage. But with COP27, has he been able to obscure his government's own pretty dreadful record on the environmental front? I mean, it, it, it sort of played well on the world stage, did it not? Um, unfortunately, I think that, that, that it worked well and not just on the environmental topics, but uh, on the human rights um, topics because it seems that there was a consensus that basically nobody is going to bring it up. So um, the way that the summit works, at least where I'm sitting, it just showed the international consensus that that the, that, uh, the a dictatorship in the country is internationally accepted and that the human rights uh, uh, abuses will be swept kind of under the rug. Um, so I didn't see any real pressure on the regime from uh, an official perspective to change policy at all. And it seems that there is no willingness to do so. So Egypt is seen as um, a stable partner under uh, Sisi, and there is no desire to change that, which would feedback into the point uh, of the loans from the, uh, from, from, uh, from the IMF. So this is all interconnected uh, from where I'm sitting. So it is quite a shame because this was a, an opportunity to raise those uh, concerns and to actually apply pressure that might work. But it was completely uh, missed. Uh, and uh, besides the bravery of uh, the SAFE uh, family, for the release of, uh, of uh, Ala, it seems that there wasn't much really done there. Ala al Fatah, yeah, and uh, that really was the only place where there was some pressure brought to bear, and, and, and quite rightly, and as you say, the, the courage, the enormous courage of 
his family to fight for his release. He is, after all, a, a British citizen. But just just very briefly, I, I'm looking at Egypt. I'm looking at these huge projects, uh, the mega projects. Egypt, like the rest of the Middle East, has serious environmental issues. <laughs> Did that get a look in at all? Does Sisi have any kind of record in terms of uh, defense of the environment, or has that just been... Uh... Well, I mean, he's been very good in marketing himself as some sort of a green leader, uh, which I personally found very, uh, let's say, um, uh, ironic because he doesn't seem that, I mean, it is really not a policy point that he has been following. And I think they are now thinking of having an uh, 11 billion project with, let's say, uh, Emirati investments for uh, wind uh, generation. But in general, he has basically gotten away with it, uh, and I don't. Uh, so it's 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 really not uh, a problem for him. So uh, if, yeah, no, it's 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 uh, so the actual record that he has in terms of the projects uh, and all of that was not really discussed, and it wasn't really highlighted. Um, so it, which is not very surprising. Yeah, I suppose the only surprising thing is that the ease with which uh, his financial backers, the Western governments, simply turn away from these uh, issues of human rights, of environmental degradation, of this uh, debt-fueled economy that appears headed over a cliff. And uh, we just continue uh, blithely as if there were no problems. Yeah, um, I mean, it's not very shocking for me, but the reason for that is that I see that many of them are actually active accomplices in that. So we have to remember that all of this debt is actually quite profitable for, uh, for uh, Egypt's uh, creditors because it used to have one of the highest interest rates on the planet. In terms of repression, the French have been selling him uh, surveillance uh, systems, the uh, arms deals. So this is all somewhat integrated. So the fact that the world has decided to look the other way is not surprising in terms that there are actual material benefits to the situation that CC's policies have uh, produced. And uh, integral part of that is the repression, is the human rights abuses. So it's not a, a big surprise, really. There is no real accountability. There is no real uh, pressure. Uh, so it's 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 it is a massive market at the moment. Uh, yes, uh, Egypt is economically weak. It's uh, a poor country, but. In reality, Sisi was able to fully integrate it into a network of a financial uh, interests, which has allowed him to get away with a lot of things that in any other place would, like, it would be considered abhorrent. Like, I cannot imagine, for example, if CC was, um, if uh, Sisi's um, um, policy was uh, implemented, for example, in uh, Iran. It would be the end of all things. <laughs> uh, or if I think of uh, the uh, critiques of uh, at Qatar because of, uh, of the World uh, Cup there, which are mostly merited, 
but Egypt can actually get away with much, much, much worse levels of repression. But logically speaking, it is because of this kind of integrated financial system and nobody really wants to raise the uh, alarm because the consequences would be a lot of um, money, a lot of wealth would be lost. So he has been extremely clever in playing this role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that, that point about too big to fail and, uh, and the factor of greed playing so much of a role in, uh, in Egypt and, and really elsewhere when we look at the situation in the world. Uh, Megan, thank you. Thank you very much. Always so good to talk to you. Thank you so much, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was the political analyst and regular Digest contributor, Megan Mandur. We welcome your comments. It's been a little more than two years since we launched, and in that time, the podcasts have been listened to more than 100,000 times in countries right around the world. So, a big thanks to all our listeners. And if you're a first-timer, check out our podcast library on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Amazon Music. In addition to our podcasts, the Herb Digest daily newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, analysts like Magid. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. If you are a student or academic, check if your university library has an Arab Digest subscription. If so, you can access a Digest for free. And if not, ask for your library to consider getting one. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources. Music